Jeremiah 2, verses 1 to 28. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthless and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tappanese have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord, of, the Lord God of hosts. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? 
Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean, I have not gone after the bowels? Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat sniffing the wind, who can restrain her last? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble they say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. This is the word of God. Father, your word tells us that the word of God is like a seed. And we are like soil. And so we pray that the devil may not snatch away the seed of God's voice, but that it may find good soil in our minds and in our hearts. So, Lord, will you speak to us through your word as we pray week by week? We pray again this morning that you may challenge us, that you may convict us, and that you may draw us back to Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We started a series in Jeremiah. If you missed uh, chapter 1 last week, you may want to pick it up on the website. It was an introduction, helps us to understand who Jeremiah was and uh, what he was doing. This morning, then, we'll look at chapter 2 from chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 5. And then next week, God willing, we'll look at chapter 3. Now, you need to know that I do not normally follow celebrity gossip But I did notice this week that Miley Cyrus and Liam Hemsworth are getting divorced. He filed for divorce but says that he still loves her. And she said that it's hard to accept that the relationship is over. They were married, wait for it, for seven months. And uh, thankfully, she'll be keeping the animals. Uh, There are seven dogs, four horses, three cats, and a pig. Now, it's hard not to smile at the triviality of the lives of celebrities. And yet there's nothing more painful than a relational breakup or a marital breakup, which is precisely what we have here in Jeremiah chapter 2. Remember from last week that the prophets in the Old Testament were not so much prophesying about the future as they were sent by God, as his messengers, as his mouthpiece, to call God's people back to himself. That was the purpose of the prophets in the Old Testament. So God had made a covenant with Israel. started with Abraham. God said to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
and I will bless you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will give you a land, and many nations will be blessed through you. And God rescued his people, his covenant people in the Exodus from the Egyptians, from slavery, from oppression, from exile. God brought them into the promised land, the land that he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But despite God's covenant commitment, his love for his people, what happened? They kept drifting from God. They kept wandering from God. They kept backsliding from loving God. So God sends his messengers. He doesn't leave them. He doesn't desert them. He doesn't abandon them. No, he sends his messengers, the prophets, to call Israel back to himself. Most of the prophets that we have in the second half of the Old Testament happened around about 800, 700, 600 BC. And so he called the prophets to be his mouthpiece, to call his people back to himself. So you have Isaiah, you have Ezekiel, you have Amos, you have Hosea, you have Nahum, you have Micah, you have Malachi, you have Joel. And here we have Jeremiah, which is precisely what he's doing. He's calling Israel back to their God. Now, in calling Israel to repent, Jeremiah uses different images, different word pictures, different metaphors to kind of shake them out of their lethargy, to kind of shake them out of their idolatry. So sometimes he speaks about God as God the warrior, God the protector, God the provider, God the farmer, God the father. But probably the most painful and harrowing picture is God the husband, God the groom whose bride Israel has deserted him and and run after other lovers. So chapter 2 is actually a love story, but it ends in a tragedy. We could almost call it from honeymoon to divorce, because Israel would not listen. But of course the message that we read here isn't just for Israel, it's for us, it's for all God's people. It's for all God's people, because all of us, from time to time, in one way or the other, have wandered away from God. Some of us, perhaps this morning or listening on the website, have wandered a very long way from God. And you've moved from the shadows into the darkness. And you know it. So this passage is not just for Israel, it's for us. That we may examine our hearts, because some of us have started dating other gods, other idols, other lovers. Three sections that will divide the passage into disloyalty, disaster, and divorce. And like always, we will spend most of our time on the first principle. All right, the first principle is disloyalty. Let's unpack what Israel were doing and why God was so anxious to call them back to himself. We notice the disloyalty of Israel. Let me read from verse 1 again. The word of the Lord came to me, that's Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of, of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the, the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, Jacob and all the clans of the house of Israel. 
Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an, an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the Lord did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. So Jeremiah starts with, with a honeymoon. We saw that in verse 2. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. There once was a time when Israel was devoted to her husband, to her God. The fresh young bride loved her husband. She followed him wherever he went. God, the bridegroom, protected his bride. He cherished his new wife. Verse 3, it says, Israel was holy to the Lord, which means separate, which means exclusively his she was his first fruits. Now, in ancient times, the first fruits of the harvest were the most precious, the most valued. Well, that was God's attitude to Israel. She was valued. She was loved. He had rescued her. He had saved her. He had called her. He had wooed her. He had loved her. She was his most precious possession. All young girls love fairy stories, don't they? And they always end the same. That's why they love them. In the end, the beautiful princess meets her handsome prince. They kiss, they marry, and they live happily ever after. But the royal prince in chapter 2 had no such luck. The beautiful princess kissed, took the money, and ran off with another bloke. Notice verse 6, it's God who rescued them from slavery, who brought them through the wilderness. Notice verse 7, it's God who brought them out of Egypt into a fertile land. The tragedy is that she took the money and ran off with another bloke. She spurned his love, his affection, his attention. Verse 7, Jeremiah says, but when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. So the problem was that Israel no longer worshipped the God who created her, the God who saved her, the God who rescued her. She no longer worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No longer the God who took her through the Exodus. No, she found better gods, better idols, better lovers. Verse 8 tells us they looked to Baal, who was the God of the Canaanites, to worship and to guide them. Notice verse 11 and 12, it's irrational, her waywardness. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Their apostasy is irrational. Jeremiah says, go west, go east. You'll find other nations worshipping other gods. And every Israelite knows that those gods aren't real gods. They're just a figment of their imagination. And yet, even though those aren't real gods, at least those nations are loyal to the non-gods they have. 
But not my people. They're not like that. They're not loyal at all. They're irrational. It's unparalleled. They have found new gods. Verse 11, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. I think the most raw emotion must be marital breakup. I know you'll understand, says the note on the kitchen table. But of course you don't. And why should you? There's nothing more painful than being deserted. Nothing more painful when you've invested yourself emotionally in somebody. One woman whose husband had an affair, then left and divorced his mistress, she said, the most difficult thing is that I still love him. And what makes it even more painful is that he's now living with my best friend. Imagine. Chapter 2, verse 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. Chapter 3, verse 1, you have played the hall with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord, from honeymoon to divorce. Now you see, we do have to ask ourselves, is that a description of me? All of us do. When we read God's word, we have to apply it to ourselves. Is that me? Perhaps there was a time you were very close to God. You had a close relationship with Jesus. You thought about him so often, every day. You sang some of the songs and the hymns to yourself. But now it's very different. In fact, you prefer not to think about Jesus. It's uncomfortable. You certainly don't want to think about the cross. That's even more uncomfortable. You've drifted, you've wandered. There are other gods, there are other idols, there are other lovers, and they've stolen your heart. Actually, you're only at church this morning under duress. It's really just expected of you. Now, it may be some of the obvious things that we turn into idols and gods, and maybe your work, maybe your studies, your career, your money. Maybe arsenal? No, not arsenal. Or it may be some sin, it may be some vice, it may be some sexual deviation. It may be something more subtle, like your best friend, or your marriage, or your kids. You see, for most of us here this morning, it's the good things that can become idols, where your marriage your family becomes more important than God. It may be more toxic. Maybe your anger, your revenge, your bitterness, your unforgiveness that drives you every day. And God says to you and me, you are just like Israel. You have committed spiritual adultery. You prefer strangers to your spiritual husband. That's basically what he's saying. Now, Jeremiah uses two images as he describes the idolatry of Israel. He uses two powerful evocative images. And we're going to spend a bit of time on them. The first is the image of adultery that we've already touched on, the image of prostitution. Notice chapter 20, chapter 2, it's not chapter, chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said I will not serve. 
Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bow down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord your God. Chapter 3, verse 1. The same image of adultery, of prostitution. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the war with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where, where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile warden. Therefore the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet your forehead, yet you have the forehead of a war. You refuse to even be ashamed. I think it's true that in every language, the words adultery or prostitution are words of shame. Even in our so-called enlightened age, there's a certain social stigma, stigma to those words, and rightly so. In ancient Israel, society was based on cl cl clan and tribe, and everyone knew that the consequences of adultery threatened the stability of their clan, of their tribe, of their future. So in the mind of a Jew, it was usually shameful to accuse someone of adultery, of prostitution. And yet that's precisely what Jeremiah says. You, Israel, you are an adulterous wife. You, you prefer strangers to your husband. Can you believe it? You know better than a prostitute. God couldn't have used more emotive language, but it actually gets worse. Gets worse, verse 23. How can you say I'm not unclean? I've not gone after the balls. That's what Israel says. Jeremiah says, look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used, used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In a month they will find her. What's he saying here? He says, well, you're actually just like an animal. You're like a she-camel, like a donkey on heat. Have you seen dogs on heat in your neighborhood? It's not pretty, is it? The only difference, says Jeremiah, is that the males don't have to run after you because you're always available. You're a spiritual nymphomaniac, and you have no shame. Verse 25, Israel says, For I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. Now we need to understand that the prophet's language is meant to shock Israel, and it's meant to shock us. It was deliberate. I, uh, Israel's idolatry is not something that God just viewed with detached objectivity like a, like a BBC newsreader. No, God is passionate. God is heartbroken. God is mad. Why? Because he's not an impersonal deity. He's not a distant creator. No, he's their husband. He's being jilted. It's a covenant, it's a marriage vow that's been broken. My dear friend, when you and I ignore God and reject God and live as if there's no God, 
when we deliberately walk in the shadows and then in the darkness, when we avoid God's voice and God's word and God's eye, it's not really that we're breaking a law. That's not the main issue. The main issue is we're breaking a relationship. We're breaking our promises. We're breaking God's heart. That's what you pick up in this chapter. Christopher Wright, who's been a great help to me, he said, remember that the God who speaks and acts in chapter 2 is the divine lover, the divine husband, whose anger is drenched in the pain of love. Which is why in chapter 3, verse 12, the divine lover still says, Return, faithless Israel. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. But sadly, Israel failed to return. She even rejected her Messiah. 700 years later, you remember what Jesus said. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you were not willing. The second image that we have here is of living water. Have a look at verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens of this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the first sin was to abandon the Lord. The second sin was to worship other gods. And Jeremiah says, imagine a farmer out in the desert, he has the rare privilege of having a, a perennial fresh water spring on his farm. But instead of using that spring water, he, he digs out a cistern, a tank. And the summer rainfall fills the tank to be used in the dry winter. But after all his sweat and his effort, he discovers that the cistern, the rock, has a crack in it. And the water drains away. It's all in vain. It's a total waste. John Calvin said that our hearts are idle factories. Always trying to create or find something in creation to satisfy the yearning of our souls. Jeremiah tells us that no creature, no created thing can satisfy the spiritual thirst of your soul. It's like a broken cistern, and all the water's gone. Barry Humphreys, many years ago, wrote a book called More, Please. Let me quote from his book, and I think you may perhaps see yourself there. He says, I always wanted more. I never had enough money or socks or sex or holidays or CDs or free meals or real friends, or guiltless pleasure, or applause, or unquestioned love. Of course I've had my fair share of most of these things, but they always left me with a vague sense of unfulfillment. Where was the rest? The fact of the matter is that nothing in this world, in the created order, will satisfy. The, the idols can't deliver. 
It's a cracked jar. They can't hold the water. Some of you may remember the band Radiohead. The singer Tom York was once asked in an interview about his ambitions. He said, ambitious for what? What for? I thought that, that when I got to where I wanted to be, everything would be different. I thought I'd be somewhere else. I thought it would all be white fluffy clouds, and then I got there. Problem is, it's not different. I'm still here. And when the interviewer asked him why he carried on making music, even though he was extremely wealthy and successful, he said, it's filling the hole. That's what everyone does. When he was asked what happened to the hole, Tom York paused a long time before he answered. It's still there. One of the great African theologians, Augustine, in 500 AD, made that well-known statement, but it rings true every time. Oh God, he was praying. He said, Oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. God made us, whether we believe in him or not, God made us for himself. And so our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in God. So in the end, idols do not deliver. They can't quench the spiritual thirst of your soul. They can't fill the hole. So here's a question for you and me. What is your broken system? You may not even think it's broken. What system are you trying to fix? Admit it, it's not going to work. Jesus said in John chapter 4, he said, everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the cistern water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. Disloyalty. Principle number two, disaster. Let's see the consequences of Israel's sin. See the consequences of her backsliding. And there are three consequences. The first is that you reap what you sow. Chapter 2, verse 14. Have you got it there? Chapter 2, verse 14. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tampanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. So having abandoned the spring of living water on the farm, the living water, they left, verse 18, with the polluted water of the Nile and the Euphrates. Having broken their treaty with God, no treaty with Egypt or Syria will fill the gap. Just this Thursday night, I heard a divorced man say to a friend, I was so stupid. I didn't realize what I had. 
Verse 17, Jeremiah says, Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God? So God's judgment is seen when he allows the godless neighbors of Israel to overrun and defeat her. He allows Israel to dig her own grave. I'm well aware that life is not simple, even at the best of times. And yet life does teach us that the more you sin, the more complicated it gets. Isn't that right? Think of your extended family. You're going to have lunch with them. You're not really looking forward to it, are you? Think of some of your colleagues. There's been so much sin and deceit and lies and pride and greed that it is impossible to unravel the mess. Because that's what sin does. So Jeremiah warns Israel, the more you reject God, the more you embrace your brainless idols, the more you will face the broken consequences. Apart from God's grace, there's an iron steel principle that you reap what you sow. Second sign of God's judgment is in verse 5. It's a strange one. Chapter 2, verse 5. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Now that word worthless, it's the same Hebrew word used in Ecclesiastes when the author of Ecclesiastes talks about vanity, emptiness. So verse 5, they not only went after worthlessness, vanity, emptiness, they themselves became worthless and empty. You see, God's judgment is that you become what you worship. Ever thought of that? You become what you love. That's what he's saying in verse 5. You went after worthlessness, and so you became worthless. The question isn't whether you worship. Everybody worships. The question is, what do you worship? The question isn't whether you love. Everyone loves. The question is, what do you love? And as I said, you become what you worship. You become what you love. So if you love God, you will become more like God. There's a great joy in that. But if you love something worthless, you'll become worthless like it. And that is God's judgment. If you worship anything other than the God of creation, let me just warn you, it will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, you will never have enough. You will never have enough. If you worship your body, your beauty, you can see my six-pack. My six-pack has become a one-pack. When you worship your body, your beauty, you will always think you're ugly. There will always be something you're not happy with. Isn't that right? If you worship your intellect and, and your mind, you'll always feel a bit of a fraud. Perhaps someone's going to catch me out. You'll think you're stupid. If you worship sex, you'll never be satisfied. When you reject God, his judgment is that you become what you worship. You become what you love. And for most people, that's immeasurably sad because it's normally totally unconscious. There's just a 
empty yearning that cannot be filled. Third sign of God's judgment is denial and delusion. When people get so embroiled in themselves, in self-indulgence, in their authority, their autonomy, their independence, their sin, in some ways they can no longer think logically in some areas. They're contradictions. You see that here in this passage, verse 20. The Israelites reject the covenant of God, I will not serve. But then verse 23, they claim that they are not breaking the covenant. I'm not unclean, I have not gone after the Baals. And then verse 25, they admit what they have just denied. Talk about confusion. I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross teaches us the five stages of grief. And the first stage of grief is denial. I think the first stage of idolatry is denial. Of course I worship God. Of course I love God. I don't worship my work, my career, my money, you say. And then when we ask you to serve here at church, to serve God amongst these people, you say, well, I'll serve God when, when I've... When I've completed my studies, then I'll serve God, then. I'll serve the church when, when, I've, when I'm settled in my job. No, 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 I'll serve the church when I've, when I've moved from lower management into middle management or higher management. Well, I actually can't serve God now. I'm the CEO. I'm unbelievably busy. But when I'm retired, then. And having retired, you've heard them say, I've never been busier in my life. <laughs> Sounds like denial to me. The thing that people worship the most, of course, is themselves. It's true for me and for you. My job, my career, my family, my pleasures, my comfort, my rights, my independence. It's the self-made trinity. Me, my, and mine. Is that right? You abandon God, and that's where you are. You're stuck with yourself, the self-made trinity. Me, mine, and mine. Let's close. Time is gone. The divorce. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the war with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where you have not been ravished. By the waysides you have sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile wardom. Therefore the shadows have been, showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come. Yet you have a forehead of a war. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me my father? You are my friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. In many circles, divorce is seen as the, almost the unforgivable sin, isn't it? Carries a heavy stigma. And yet here in chapter 2 and 3, Yahweh, the groom of Israel, is described as a divorcee. Have you ever thought of that? His bride abandoned him. 
She played the war with many lovers. She ravished her lovers in public, shameless. And yet, and yet, chapter 3, verse 1, Jeremiah still holds out hope. Would you return to me, declares the Lord. Next week we'll see chapter 3, verse 12, Return, faithless Israel. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. Despite her adulteries, her idolatries, God still sends Jeremiah to call her back. Won't you come back? It seems as if Jesus showed the same grace when he spoke to the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says to the church, to Christians like you and me, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember, everyone worships something. If it's not God the creator, it's an idol. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. Father, there's not a person in this room who hasn't been here in one way or the other. But Lord, you are speaking to us today. Will you help us to repent? Lord, we can't even repent on our own. So will you help us? Will you convict us? Will you give us no peace and no comfort until we've exposed our sin, until we've opened our hearts and told God where we are and called on him for mercy. Oh, Father, have mercy upon us that you may be our first love above everything else. And so, Lord, go with us into this week. Help us to reflect on your word. Help us to take it to heart that we can walk right with God and know the joy of loving him and serving him. And we pray this for Christ's sake.